Good to see all of you here this morning. Welcome to Infusion Church. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Tom Wing. I'm one of the team of pastors here. And uh, if I haven't met you yet, uh, feel free to grab me at the end of the service and introduce yourself. I'd love to, I'd love to meet you if, if you're visiting. Uh, we are going through the book of James, and this week is our last week in our series, Faith That Works. We're going to talk about faith and patient prayer today. This has been a really good series. Uh, I've really enjoyed it. I think one of, the, one, of the, one of the awesome things about this series also has been to how many different people, how many different guys have preached uh, throughout this series. really cool that we are in a community that has uh, a number of people that can preach the gospel and preach it well, and so we're really blessed that is the case here. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 20. James 5, 7 through 20. I'll be reading out of the ESV, and it'll be up here on the screen uh, behind me as well. Reads like this Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. Excuse me so that you may not fall under condemnation. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Would you pray with me this morning? Almighty God, we stand in awe of you, Lord. You are glorious and worthy to be praised, Father. Lord, we thank you for your word that you have given to us, Father, and we come under your word this morning and ask that By your Holy Spirit, you would instruct us through your word, guide us into the truth, Lord, and empower us to obey your word. Father, I pray that you would open our ears this morning to hear clearly, our eyes to see clearly, and our hearts this morning, Lord, to comprehend what it is you want to show us this morning. Lord, and I pray that you would 
captivate our hearts and change them today, Father. I ask for your grace and the power of your Holy Spirit to empower me this morning as I preach that your name may be exalted and the body of Christ may be edified. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So James has just finished in the previous chapters and verses acknowledging the church's suffering and in fact rebuking those at, at whose hands they're suffering. James's letter isn't some theoretical teaching to his, to his listeners that might be applicable down the road. There is real suffering going on in the church and James is speaking directly to it. And for us, life is going to be full of times of difficulty and, and ease. You can count on it. And James prepares us with a God-oriented response to, to all seasons of life. I, I think that there is a danger for us that life's troubles can, can lead to rebellion and, and a casting off of, of spiritual practices at times. And, and likewise, times of Times of ease can lead to complacency or thinking that, that I can cope with life on my own and God can get forgotten. John Kelvin said about James that James means that there is not a time in which God does not invite us to himself. So in all seasons of life, we know where to go. And as, as James is closing this letter to the churches in the text we're looking at today, he reminds them that a life of faith is not an individual endeavor. Christian community is absolutely essential to growth in faith. And so he gives us some parting instructions concerning how we care for one another in Christian community as we walk through times of ease and times of difficulty and suffering. He basically says, pray, Watch what you say and persevere in the faith, looking forward to that day when Jesus will return. So James's first advisement to us is a continuation of his instruction from James chapter 1. So we've got to go all the way back to verses 2 through 4 in chapter 1. And it says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so we've learned that life's trials and suffering, they're not barriers in our walk with God. In fact, they are the way forward to spiritual maturity for us. Trials are tools for the strengthening of our faith and the production of, of steadfastness. And so James continues his instruction on how to walk through these trials by, by showing us a few things. And first of all, he shows us how to be patient in suffering. And he gives us a few examples to look at as it pertains to patience. First of all, he tells us, look at the farmer. A farmer is the perfect illustration of what it looks like to wait. Once they have plowed the soil and planted those seeds, there's Nothing else that they can do to make those crops grow. They have to wait. And especially in the first century when James was written, that was for real. They just waited. So the farmer must wait. And they got to trust God with that which they cannot control, namely the weather. All right, God, let it rain. 
Let it rain and let these crops grow. Because if they don't, I don't eat. And we don't make a living. And so the farmer can be patient because he has faith that God controls the seasons. But the farmer doesn't remain idle while he's waiting for the rain. It was really interesting this summer as we drove across Nebraska and South Dakota and Minnesota and you're looking, you're looking at these endless cornfields and endless fields of soybeans and my wife Julia asked me, what do the farmers do during the growing season when the crops are in and they're just waiting for them to grow? What, what happens then? Well, we learned that they don't, just, they don't just sit around. They're busy cultivating, weeding, fertilizing, maintaining the equipment that they just used to plant the fields and preparing the equipment that they're going to use for the harvest. They're about the business of, of farming as they wait for those crops to grow. They're not sitting around. And we can learn how to wait patiently, but not idly as we look at the farmer. Even as we walk through the trials of life, we must still be about the work of the kingdom, doing all we can to see God's glorious purposes fulfilled, even in our trials and suffering. So we look at the farmer. He also tells us, look at the prophets. Look at the prophets. And so if if you think that James is calling us to be passive in the face of trials and persecution, then you probably have never heard of the prophets or read about them. I want to give you just a little glimpse from Jeremiah chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. And you have to get kind of the picture here. So Jeremiah is in the temple. And he just got done telling everyone in the temple that would listen, that was in earshot, that God would bring disaster upon the city. Now listen to this. Now Pashur, the priest, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. Then Pashur beat Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate of the house of the Lord. The next day when Pashur released Jeremiah from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, mind you, he just got released, right? He just got let out for saying some stuff. Jeremiah says to him, the Lord does not call your name Pashur, but terror on every side. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. They shall fall by the sword of their enemies while you look on. And I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon. He shall carry them captive to Babylon and shall strike them down with the sword. Moreover, I will give all the wealth of the city, all its gains, all its prized belongings, and all the treasures of the kings of Judah into the hand of their enemies who shall plunder them and seize them and carry them to Babylon. And you, Pashur, and all who dwell in your house shall go into captivity. To Babylon you shall go, and there you shall die, and there you shall be buried, you and all your friends to whom you have prophesied falsely. Now if Pashur had Jeremiah beaten and put in the stocks before he said that, I can only imagine what he did to him. After that, Jeremiah, if you study him, read about him, survived much persecution, a plot to murder him. And many scholars think that Jeremiah is one of the prophets that Hebrews 11 speaks about when they say they were stoned and they were sawn in two. 
In light of all that, why does verse 11 of our text say, we consider the prophets blessed? It's interesting that we're quick, I think, to call others blessed for enduring suffering the likes of which we would not want to experience. I'd like you to hear this from Hebrews chapter 11, and it's speaking. This is is Hebrews 11 speaking of the prophets in verses 33 and 35. And so it says, Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, listen, so that they might rise again to a better life. Rise again to a better life. That literally means obtain a better resurrection. And so we consider them blessed because they were patiently faithful to do what God had called them to do, even in the midst of great, great suffering. Jeremiah was faithful to call the Hebrew people to repentance and to call them back to God, even though they treated him like Pashur did. And eventually his own village dragged him off to Egypt where he was murdered. But ultimately Jeremiah was blessed because he, through faith, obtained what what Hebrews 11 calls a better resurrection. A resurrection much better than, than those that were brought back to mortal life when it says the women were given back their dead. But he let steadfastness have its full effect so that he might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James also tells us to look at Job. Verse 11 says, You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, it's likely that many of you have have heard the story of Job, but I, I... would encourage you, if, if you haven't, to, to read the story of Job in the book of Job in, in the Bible. Job lost absolutely everything, his crops, his livestock, his property, his health, his children all died. And the one thing he didn't lose was his wife, and she told him, curse God and die. Our text makes it clear that God has a purpose in Job's suffering. And it was that the Lord would be shown to be compassionate and merciful. As I was thinking about that, how is God compassionate and merciful as you look at the life of Job? I read through Job, and at the end of Job, after all the suffering he's gone through, Job has a realization. We read about it in Job 42, and he's talking to God after all this experience. Verses 5 and 6, and this is what Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The purpose of Job's suffering was that he wouldn't just hear about God, but he would, he would see him. He would know him. He would experience him. And God's Compassion and mercy are shown in in Job's humble posture as he repents and and literally translated says, I despise myself and I am comforted in dust and ashes. Job's search for comfort runs all throughout the the entire book. He just wants comfort. 
from God and he finally realizes it as he sees God. And I can picture Job going, I went through all this and, and, and all I wanted was comfort and the whole time it was there, God was there walking with me. Do you see what happens here with Job? He's, he's looking back on, on this terrible suffering and all he can say is, it's not, God, this is your fault. God, you screwed up. All he can say is, I despise myself and I'm comforted knowing that I'm in the presence of God Almighty. Job's patience in suffering was a, was a tool for strengthening his faith. And ultimately, God showed himself to be compassionate and merciful to Job. Not just by giving Job back everything and then some. But Job looks back on all of it. And he repents. And he says, thank you, God. He worships God. And he says, I'm comforted now in my repentance in my dust and ashes and gives glory to God. So we're to be patient in suffering, following the example of the, the farmer, the prophet, and Job, and we're to be pure in speech, James, us calls, James calls us to be pure in speech. Verse 9 says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Verse 12 says, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. As you read through the text, verse 9 may seem to be a little out of place, but, but when you think about it, grumbling and, and impatience with one another is much more likely to take place if we're going through trials and difficult circumstances. And so he warns us to not grumble against one another. We're, we're, we're going to get enough hardship from outside the, the Christian community. We can't afford to be squabbling with one another, accusing one another. I want to encourage us. Let's be supportive. Encourage one another in the faith. And verse 12 teaches us we shouldn't need to swear by something or, or, or someone. We should be so committed to honesty and integrity in speech, in our community, that our yes really does mean yes, and our no really does mean no. There's a trustworthy bond built among us. So we're encouraged to be patient in suffering, pure in speech, and prayerful in trials, and we're going to camp out here for a little while. James seems that, once again, he's, he's reinforcing what he taught earlier in the book, and in chapter 1, verse 5, and he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Meaning, if you don't have what it takes to, to, to go through these trials and sufferings, and, and, and we don't, let's, let's be honest, then you better turn to God. You better know where to go in the correct way forward in situations that require patience and perseverance. The correct way forward is prayer. It's through prayer. When we pray, we're acknowledging we know, God, that you're with us in this trial. I know you're with me in my suffering. And prayer shows that our, that our patience isn't passive. It's an active trust in God. There's a few different kind of forms of prayer, I guess, if you will, that, that James talks about. First of all, he talks about elder prayer. Chapter 5, verse 14 and 15 says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil 
in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. I think this verse is a good indication that prayer for healing is still for today's church. James seems to indicate that we can pray and expect results, just like the prophet Elijah did. And James seems to be telling not not only the elders, but the entire church to pray and expect God to answer those prayers, even for the sick to be raised from their sick beds. Now, the likely situation here in in this text is is a person that's so sick that they're they're bedridden and unable to participate in in the community gatherings. Uh, So the elders would have to go as representatives of the church to them to pray for them. this This is... how I arrived at that conclusion. When he says they're sick, it literally means to be weak or in a state of incapacity. So likely the person is bedridden or stuck in their home and can't come to the meetings when they would gather. Secondly, to call the elders is is to summon the elders, probably because the person isn't able to attend something. So the elders would have to go to them as representatives of the community. And finally, to pray over it seems to be that they would literally be standing over someone like a bed or a mat or a sick bed or something, pray, standing over and praying over this person. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to be bedridden to call the elders to pray for you, but I'm just doing my best to try to be faithful to what I, what I think the text is actually saying to us. I think it's important to point out, too, that the emphasis in terms of the healing power to to raise the sick is not on the elders. The emphasis is not on the elders or the anointing oil, but the emphasis is on the prayer of faith and that the Lord will raise him up. So Every time we pray, we're saying, Lord, we trust your will with, with this situation, Lord, with this trial, with my suffering, Lord, with this sickness, Lord, with this temptation to sin, Lord, with this family member I'm praying for, with this neighbor that I can't stand, Lord, I'm trusting you. I want to make a few things clear as it, as it comes to, to prayer. I think the scripture is clear that not all prayers will be answered as, as we desire or as we imagine they would, and we see this very clearly. Second Corinthians chapter 12, and verses 8 through 10, the apostle Paul is pleading to God about what he calls the thorn in his flesh, and it likely was some physical ailment that he had. This is what he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul goes on, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So continued sickness after prayers is not necessarily an indication that that the person who's, who's sick or those praying for that person lack faith. In situations where a person isn't immediately healed, we continue to persevere in prayer, and we trust God that His will will be done. Just like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, if this cup could pass, take it. Nevertheless, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. And so He trusts the Father that His perfect will will be done. As I was preparing, I was thinking back at, at, at opportunities that I've had to pray for people who were sick. One particular man that I recall who had cancer, 
and a group of people and, and myself had an opportunity to pray for him. And God healed him. And he reminds me of it oftentimes when, when I see him. He's from my hometown, Minnesota. We prayed for him. God healed him. And every time I see him, he gives me an update on how he's doing. Hey, I'm doing great. My health is good. And, and it's just it's really cool, really encouraging. And there are other people that I prayed for. Another young woman that I remember who suffered with cancer for years and years and years and suffered. And God in his perfect plan deemed that he would be most glorified in, in taking her home to be with him, to be cancer-free in his presence. Fullness of joy and the everlasting pleasures in the presence of God. We just don't know what God's going to do, and so we trust him, that his will is perfect. Paul's own words were that God allowed him, God allowed him to be physically weak. Why? Paul says, for the sake of Christ. God was most glorified when his power shone through Paul's weakness. Secondly, all sickness is not the result of sin. John chapter 9, verse 2 and 3, and Jesus heals a blind man. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. I say all sickness is not the result of sin, but it does seem clear, and I think our text allude to this, that sin can lead to sickness. I think it's also important to note that some, some illnesses are just a byproduct of living in a fallen, sinful world. I want to tell you, prayer isn't just for church leaders or people who have, who have titles around the church. James encourages, encourages us that everyone prays, everyone. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. He's talking to individuals. He say, if you're suffering, pray. Do you, pr- do you pray? Do you pray for yourself? As, I, as I'm studying for this sermon, this song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, was on my mind. And I, I looked up the writer of it just out of, out of curiosity, and I never knew the story behind, behind the song. Joseph Scriven is the man who wrote it. He was no stranger to suffering, I learned. I'm going to read you just a a portion from what's called the story behind the song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, by Lindsay Terry. As a young man, Joseph Scriven fell in love with a young lady who was eager to spend her life with him. However, on the day before their wedding, she fell from her horse while crossing a bridge over the river ban and was drowned in the water below. Joseph stood helplessly watching from the other side of the river. In an effort to overcome his sorrow, he began to wander. He was from Ireland. By age 25, his travels had taken him to an area near Port Hope, Canada. He became highly regarded by the people of that area. He tutored some of the local children in their schoolwork. It was there he met a wonderful young lady, Elisa Roche, and again fell in love. They had exciting plans to be married. However, tragedy reared its ugly head once again, and she died of pneumonia just weeks before they could wed. He labored in Port Hope among the impoverished widows and sick people. He often served for no wages and even shared his clothes with those less fortunate than himself. On an occasion when Joseph became ill, a friend who was visiting with him discovered a poem near his bed. 
and asked who had written it. Scriven said, the Lord and I did it between us. He thought the poem would perhaps bring some spiritual comfort to his mom who was sick and still lived in Ireland. Scriven had not intended that anyone else should read it. On August 10th of 1886, Joseph Scriven's body was pulled from a body of water near Boodley, Ontario. He had drowned. Two monuments have been erected in his honor. Each has the first stanza of his song engraved on it. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Now, I, maybe like some of you, have sung that song many, many, many times. But to say it like that and to really listen to the words was very moving for me. It's so crazy to think that we have access to the God of the universe and we might not use it. We might not talk to him. The God of all creation is listening intently and he wants to hear from you. I just kept thinking this week, God, I hope that we become a church that that prays. I encourage us to pray. Get up early if you must and and spend time with God. Stay up late if you must and, and spend time with God. If you can't sleep at night, pray. Pray throughout the day. Get on your knees in your living room and and cry out to God. Gather your family and and lead them in prayer. Pray for your neighbors. Pray for unreached people around the world that have yet to hear the gospel. Pray that God would send people to those unreached people. Pray for one another. I would love for us to begin to ask one another more, how can I pray for you? How can I be praying for you? I hope we pray like like David did when when he was in the wilderness. He says, I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, God. Hear my words. He says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, God. As in a dry and weary land where there's no water, I can't survive without you, God. As we talk about being prayerful in in trial, it's it's important to note that prayer and confession build community. They build it. Verse 16, James tells us, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. God intends that prayer bring the community together. When one member gets sick or is struggling, the other members can Rally alongside and graciously intercede redemptively on their behalf. Also, confession is an important part of Christian community. I don't think James is calling us to have confession services or something like that where we all publicly confess our sins to the entire community. That could be counterproductive, probably. I think it's good to think of confession, though, in in, in three forms. Private, meaning our sins should always be confessed to God. Because ultimately, it's it's, it's against Him that we have sinned. And Psalm 51 teaches us about that. 
Secondly, personal. If you've sinned against someone or a group of people, it's proper to confess your sin to that person or that group of people. I'll give you an example. Just recently, I, I gathered all, I had gathered my children together and I confessed to them. I said, listen, daddy's been sinful in his attitude and his actions toward you. And I explained to them my sin and how I exalted something above Jesus. And I asked them to forgive me. And third, public. There are times, I think, when, when public confession is, a, is appropriate. For example, if, if I were to sin in such a manner, manner that it disqualified me for eldership in this community, then it would be proper for me to confess publicly and apologize before the infusion community. It's essential, I think, that we have people close enough to us that they can inquire about our spiritual state. I think it's just another indicator that we cannot live a healthy Christian life apart from community. We just can't. And so we're encouraged to be patient in suffering, pure in speech, prayerful in trials, and finally, persistent in soul winning. Verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Those are a couple of tricky verses. And I'll confess, I was a little uncomfortable with my theology this week as I studied this. And it was, it was a good experience for me. I, I don't want to be so comfortable in my theology that I gloss over the warnings about sin in Scripture. I want, us to be, I want us to be careful that we don't interpret Scripture through the lens of, of our theology, but rather we let the Scripture teach us our theology. And so these verses were difficult for me because James calls them brothers as if he's talking to the Christian community. But then he says their sinful wandering could lead to the death of their soul. I think there's a couple things at play here. First of all, addressing them as, as brothers and sisters does not necessarily assume genuine saving faith. I, I could get up here and say brothers and sisters, but I don't know the condition of, of everyone's heart. How the sinful wanderer responds to your earnest brotherly pursuit will prove whether they're a brother or sister or not. Meaning a brother or sister with Genuine saving faith will turn from their wandering when pursued. Secondly, the final evidence of saving faith is perseverance, not profession. In other words, we don't ultimately know who is genuinely saved until they persevere to the end. Jesus speaks about this in Matthew 10. He says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the Apostle Paul in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. I think these verses line up too with James' assertion that faith without works is dead. A, a profession of faith is, is powerless. If that faith is isn't accompanied by a life of consistent obedience. It doesn't lead us to a life of consistent obedience. 
Theoretically speaking, in, in five years, I could reject the faith and say, yeah, this Christianity thing was a joke. I just wanted the position. That's all I wanted. I don't want anything to do with this. And I could walk out an infusion church. And if I didn't come back from my wandering, you would find out that I was not a genuine brother in Christ. By the way, if you see me wandering, <laughs> I hope that you don't say, well, Tom's got good theology, he'll be okay. No, this scripture and me telling you right now is an invitation to you to call a sinner back from their wandering. In this case, me. Graciously, graciously, call me out on it. Or tell one, let one of the other pastors know. Or let my wife know. And they can call me out on it. I think what we learn from this verse is God has chosen to use means to ensure our eternal security. And one of those means is each other. God uses us in each other's lives. Look, look at your brothers and sisters. How are they doing? Do you know them well enough? to detect the dangers of sin in their lives? Are you known well enough in the community that people could call you out on your sin, call you back from wandering? I think, thirdly, James is trying to convey a warning. There is an eternal spiritual death to which sin leads. It's no joke. We should be scared to death of sin. And deeply concerned for our brothers and sisters that sinfully wander from the faith. I think James might be after the same warning we receive in, in Romans chapter 6. When it says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. The soberness and, and the wrestling that, that I was feeling this week is that, is that God, I don't want to become so cozy in my theology that I, that I miss the warnings about the destructiveness of sin. Sin is exalting anything above God, and it has got to be a big deal to us. Let's look out for one another. Let me know. Let me know when, I, when I'm wandering too close to the edge and pull me back. I want to conclude with talking about the why. The why of all of this. Why does James give us instruction on, on how to live faithfully and, and how to care for one another in Christian community? Is it just a list of, of rules for us to keep so that we can look more like Christians or that so, so, so we can look more like God wants us to look or act like he wants us to act? I don't think so. When James hints at the answer in a couple of places, in verse 7 he says, until the coming of the Lord. And in verse 8 he says, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. James' solution to the, the problem of evil and suffering is Christ is coming back soon. He'll bring judgment upon the wicked with justice and equity and he'll make all things right. God has a purpose, purpose in all suffering. Namely, he's preparing us for something, the return of his son. 
the incentive for patience and suffering and, and purity and speech and prayer and trials is the common bond that, that we share in Jesus and the imminent return of our Lord. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus laid down his life so that we can enjoy fellowship with God forever. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God. One day Jesus is going to return and he's going to take all true sons and daughters to be completely fulfilled with everlasting delight in the God who created them for his glory. James is directing us to fix our eyes on that day, to pray for and to to live in light of that day when, when Christ returns, to care for one another so that we remain faithful and persevere to the end. John Piper points out in his Solid Joys devotional that all the other gifts of the gospel exist to make this one possible. We are forgiven so that our guilt does not keep us away from God. We are justified so that our condemnation does not keep us away from God. And we're given eternal life now with the promise of new resurrection bodies so that we have the capacity for enjoying God to the fullest forever. Everything in life should be viewed in in light of the glorious return of Jesus. You might be suffering, you might be going through it now, but look, look at Jesus. That's what you've been waiting for. That's, That's what you're longing for. That's what your soul desires. We can wait patiently, enduring suffering because we look forward to Jesus' return. We can pray because we look forward to Jesus' return. We look out for one another and we encourage one another to persevere in the faith because we look forward to Jesus' return. And just like Job and, and Jeremiah, we get to see God, not just hear Him, not just hear about Him, but to see Him, to know Him. I tell you what, knowing God and, and being known by God is infinitely more valuable than any treasure will gain or lose here in this earth. Amen. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, help us, Lord, to be patient in suffering, Lord. Pure in our speech, prayerful in trials and, and ease, Lord, and persistent in soul winning, Lord, and encouraging one another to persevere in the faith. God, help us that we despise, that we hate sin, Lord. Help us to take very seriously the consequences of sin. Help us that we're gracious with one another when we see each other sinning or sinfully wandering, Father. Help us to graciously call one another to repentance. Shepherd the hearts of each other back toward you. Father, I I pray, I hope, I long that we be a church that prays, that prays, that prays, Lord. That fervently prays, Father. 